Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 30 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Since we were last here, the Dodgers ended up outlasting the Giants for a spot in the National League Championship Series to play the Braves. And, well, so far, let me tell you, what a series this has been. As of right now, the Braves are up three games to one on the Dodgers and have outscored the latter 22-14. to 14. The Braves walked off Game 1 and Game 2 thanks to an Austin Riley walk-off single in Game 1 and another walk-off single off the glove of Corey Seager in Game 2. The last time a team walked off Games 1 and 2 in the same postseason series was the Marlins in 1997. The Dodgers scored four in the eighth inning to beat the Braves 6-5 in Game 3, and the Braves capped off what could be the final game in L.A. 9-2. If the Braves win Game 5, it'll be the first time that they'll be off to the World Series since 1999. Meanwhile, in the ALCS, an incredible battle has been raging on between the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros, who will play Game 6 on Friday, October 22nd. The Astros took Game 1 from some late-game heroics, winning 5-4, but it kind of seemed like the Red Sox took that a bit personally. Game 2 finished with a 9-5 Red Sox win with the first of three Grand Slams in two ALCS games coming off the bat of J.D. Martinez in, get this, the first inning. (laughs) The very next inning, however, it was Rafael Devers' turn. With the bases loaded and one away in the second inning, Devers clobbered the second Grand Slam of the game to put the Red Sox up 8-0 in the second inning. It was the first time that that feat had ever been achieved in postseason history. Game 3 followed a pretty similar path, as in the second inning once again, Kyle Schwarber decided that he wanted in on the fun. On a three balls and no strike count, he got a hold of a pitch and scored the third Grand Slam of the series for the Red Sox. And then, Astros pitching decided to turn it up a little bit. After giving up 21 runs in Game 2 and Game 3, the Astros have held the Red Sox to just three runs while scoring 18 of their own. So... Really, this series, I think, is still very much up for grabs. Anyway, let's get on with the episode. So, as in all sports, and, well, really just in life, weird stuff happens. Now, it may not happen much, but it still does happen. In today's episode, I want to talk about some of the really weird stuff that has happened in the history of baseball and break it down into small, bite-sized pieces that will amaze and maybe confuse you. Let's start with one of the greatest promotion night fails in recent history, known as Disco Demolition Night. Now, let me set the scene for you. In Chicago, there was a radio DJ by the name of Steve Dahl. Dahl decided that He wanted to do an anti-disco event, as the huge rise of disco in the late 70s was causing some pretty big backlash to rock music fans. So, 
Dahl proposed a promotion to the Chicago White Sox that included blowing up a box of disco records, many of which were brought in by fans. Basically, what the deal was is that every fan that brought a disco record into the stadium was admitted into the stadium for just 98 cents. So, you know, knowing that, I think you can kind of see where this is going. The White Sox were hoping for a pretty modest turnout of around 20,000 fans for the event as it would take place in between a doubleheader. 50,000 fans showed up and completely packed the stadium with their records in hand. Some fans were even sneaking in as the first game started, which caused all of the security personnel to go to the gates and try to stop those people from coming in. However, by doing this, the field was left practically unattended, and fans started throwing these records like frisbees into the crowd and at the players on the field. The Tigers' designated hitter, Rusty Staub, recalled the records flying through the air and sticking straight up out of the ground. He urged his teammates to literally wear batting helmets when they were playing their positions, as it wasn't just one, but many records that started to litter the field and literally stick into the field, you know, because it's a record. <laughs> and I mean, that wasn't the only thing. The game had to be paused multiple times as an incredible amount of firecrackers and empty beer bottles and lighters were tossed all over the field. But the game eventually finished, and as Dahl ran out onto the field to light the box up, he told the crowd, Quote, this is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally. Now listen, we took all the disco records you brought tonight, which was a lie, by the way. Uh, clerks actually stopped collecting the records pretty much right away. But he continued saying, we got them in a giant box and we're going to blow them up real good. Oh boy. Dahl set off the explosives, which obviously left a massive burning hole in the grass <laughs> and as many of the security guards were still watching the gates the fans started to storm the field people started climbing up on the foul poles setting more records on fire and tearing up the grass they completely destroyed one of the batting cages and literally stole all of the bases that were stuck in the ground Harry Carey, the all-time great sportscaster, tried to settle the riot down on the PA system, with no avail, and the scoreboard started flashing, please return to your seats, but yeah, as you can imagine, it didn't work. It wasn't until Chicago police, dressed in full riot gear, arrived to restore any sort of order, but by that time, the Tiger skipper Sparky Anderson decided that it was unsafe for his team, understandably, who had at this point barricaded themselves in the dugout to stay away from just the riot of fans. I mean, it was just unsafe for the team to play another game. Well, that and also there was literally a bonfire in center field. <laughs> On the topic of rather questionable promotions, let's talk about the Cleveland Indians and their 10-cent beer night. Now, the Indians had actually done this promotion before with actually pretty good success a few years before, known as Nickel Beer Day. But this incident in 1974 came with some bad blood. 
You see, a week earlier, the Indians and the Rangers met and had a bench-clearing brawl that left a few fans pretty unhappy with the Rangers. So, if you think about it, 10-cent beer night kind of just was at the wrong time. The deal was a pretty good one, though. I mean, for just 10 cents, you could buy a cup of low alcohol, of course, beer, but you were limited to six beers per purchase. However, there was no limit on the amount of purchases that you could make, so you could just keep coming back with six beers, and yeah, they couldn't stop you. So, I mean, like the disco demolition night, I think you can kind of see where this is going. It didn't also help that before the games were even started, there was just a lot of trash talking that was going on between the two teams and the team's fan bases. Apparently, a Cleveland reporter, after the first brawl game, asked the Rangers manager, Billy Martin, are you going to take your armor to Cleveland? To which Martin replied, nah, they won't have enough fans there to worry about. So, yeah, I think some of the Cleveland baseball fans kind of took that to heart, and even some of the Cleveland sports talk show hosts and the Indians radio announcer decided to talk up the rivalry a little bit and get some fans to the ball game to support the Indians and, and light this fire. And it worked. 25,134 fans showed up, twice the expected number, for that Tuesday night game. As the game went on, fans continued to run onto the field. They started shooting off firecrackers randomly into the stands. They threw hot dogs and empty bottles onto the field. And as the Indians would eventually tie up the game in the bottom of the ninth, it just all kind of went downhill. A 19-year-old teenager ran out onto the field in an attempt to steal Jeff Burrow's hat, who at the time was one of the guys from the Rangers outfield. Trying to chase this fan down, you know, to get his hat back, he tripped and fell. Now, the Rangers players thought that he was attacked by the fan that stole his hat, so they came out with baseball bats, charging the fan. And in return, more fans from all around the stadium started storming the field, wielding whatever they could find, and in some cases, pieces of chairs that they tore off. Indians players, although they had their differences, ran out with bats of their own in an attempt to protect the Rangers players from the Indians fans. Because the hundreds of fans that had now surrounded the Rangers players, I mean, they felt that they were truly in danger. The zoo-like atmosphere sent the players into the dugouts, locked away. The game was forfeited to the Rangers as the Cleveland Police Department finally restored order. One really strange thing that I found that has to do with this is a player named Rusty Torres. Torres was one of the players in both of these riots that I've mentioned, as well as one other that occurred in the final game for the Washington Senators before they relocated. But I just think it's a crazy, odd coincidence that he was part of, like, three of the biggest riots in the history of baseball. Now, another really weird instance happened in spring training when the big unit, Randy Johnson, was just trying to prove himself on the mound for the Diamondbacks. As it eventually was added to the legend that was the big unit, Randy hit a bird with a pitch. Seriously, his fastball was that good 
During an at-bat, Randy Johnson threw a fastball towards the plate that was completely intercepted by a careless avian. The ball hit the bird so hard that all you could see was just an explosion of feathers and a ball rolling away that was later deemed a uh, no-pitch. Now, if you've never seen this video for the accident, it's just incredible. However, according to Randy Johnson, he was considered a bird killer, and there were a few organizations that actually considered filing charges on the bird's behalf. But since it was just such a freak accident, there were no charges ever pressed. Funnily enough, though, Johnson went on to win his fourth of five Cy Young Awards that year, as well as a World Series title. Now, this technically has never happened since, at least at a professional level, but there have been a handful of really close calls, including when the Indians walked off a ball game as it hit into center field, hit a bird that was trying to fly away, causing the outfielder Coco Crisp to completely miss it as it rolled into the outfield. So, kind of the same. The final weird occurrence that I want to cover actually happened in a game between the Colorado Rockies and the Arizona Diamondbacks, and one of the weirdest reasons for a delay I think that I've ever heard of before. On May 17th, 2012, a swarm of bees invaded Coors Field, seemingly out of nowhere. As the top of the fifth inning rolled around, a huge swarm of angry bees decided to fly around and cling to a pole in one of the camera bays on the first base side of the dugout. Although no players had to come off the field, one of the Diamondbacks pitchers was attracting quite a few of them because of the scent of his hair gel. Now, the game did eventually resume after a beekeeper came and sucked up all the little bees in a vacuum-like device in order to transport the hive somewhere else. But it's not the first time that insects had become a problem in an MLB game. During a playoff game against the Yankees and the Indians in 2007, a huge swarm of midges, of which Ohioans call Canadian soldiers, infested the field. In between innings, cans of bug spray started making their way around the field as the umpires and the players were really just trying to do anything they could to get the little bugs away from them. Some Yankees players even complained that they literally could not see what they were doing as bugs just kept hitting them and running into them and causing them to gag every time they had their mouths open. And honestly, looking at the footage, I don't think that they were lying. The air looked so dense of bugs, and there was a pass ball that led to tying the game and other terrible command issues from the pitchers that really just continued on to the night, probably because they were just so distracted and so unfocused. The Indians did finally win the game after 11 innings, but, I mean, I just can't imagine how hard it was to focus. I mean, not only was it a playoff game, but you also had a million flies circling around you, landing on your face, and so on. I mean, just talking about it is making my skin crawl. So, in next week's episode, I want to talk about a very strange case. One of what would have been one of the greatest pitchers of all time that never actually pitched in the major leagues. And the story behind why is just such a weird one. Thank you for listening.